Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. Our podcast is brought to you by That's The Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crust that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's The Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292, order online at thatsasum.com, or download That's The Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. It's November 29th, the last few days of November. Remember, it's Prostate Awareness Month. Four years ago today, Conrad, Dr. Conrad Murray was sentenced to jail in the Michael Jackson death. It is fellow podcaster Anna Ferris's birthday today, and somebody that we all love and trust here in Seattle, it's Russell Wilson's birthday today. Love to give a shout-out to Cheryl, who wrote in and gave a great letter and feedback to the podcast. My number one fan, Nate, out there. And thank you for the kind reviews on iTunes, Dustin. Today's guest is Steve Rhodes. He's a friend of mine, a coffee-drinking buddy of mine. Uh, I first came across Steve, and I kind of looked at him a little different and said, "Um, there's a little bit of street in that guy. I I spent a lot of time in Belltown in Seattle and... I spent a lot of my adulthood in Seattle, and I look around at nighttime and saw a lot of things going on on the streets, and I could tell that Steve had a little history on the streets, and he's here to talk about some projects that he's doing and just have a a good conversation with one of his buddies. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, and thank you so much for letting me talk to you about uh, what's going on. Yeah, it's a little bit more extended conversation than just having a cup of yeah. coffee with you every morning. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be great, man. Hey, um, tell people about your childhood. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? And uh, oh. tell us a little bit wow. about your okay. history. Well, I just put it right out the right out there. If you ever seen Full Metal Jacket, that psychopath, that's how I was raised. I was raised at Paris Island, South Carolina. My dad was a uh, Marine Corps drill instructor. And just think about this. You know, he spent three years in Vietnam. And when he wasn't in Vietnam, he was at Paris Island training these young men to go over there. So there is no way that he was going to let anybody get through him. Because if you can't make it at Paris Island, you sure can't make it in Vietnam. So he was tough. And then I couldn't read. And I read backwards. And back in the 50s, no one knew about what the hell was going on with me. So I was getting thumped, and I went through a really bad time. And I was a small kid, and uh, 
I was the oldest of all the grandkids, and you know, my dad's ego just couldn't let. Just, I had a very hard time growing up. Yeah, I Is used that... to pull my hair out. Actually, I have pictures. Literally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why my dad gave me always shaved my head, so I couldn't get my fingers on the hair. And that was a nervous reaction. Yeah, to... I was. An, I was just. I couldn't take it. Was I mean, he constantly on you for stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And being in I quit a... smiling after a second trip back from Vietnam. I could tell all my kid pictures because you know when I lost my mom, um, all the pictures started coming out, and I could see, you know, I quit smiling. There was no more smiling, and you know, it's, you know, it was really rough growing up. So did you have to move around a lot being yeah. a military family? Yeah, moved to Indiana, and then. Uh, lived on farms and all my uncles and aunts or I was raised on, on the country. And then you followed in your dad's footsteps, correct? Yeah. I, well, I always knew I was going to be a Marine and all his buddies, you know, you hang around in a circle with all of his buddies and they got napalm scars on their face. They got, you know, he was in force recon and it was really prisoner snatches and all this craziness, you know. And I, 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 I went to that. I loved it, you know. As a child, how did you view, view Vietnam and what was going on there? Uh, as a child, um, I... Did you know much about what was going on or that not, it... Well, I, Dad, his whole mission, you know, was he's looking out for his buddy. He could give a crap about the politics. He doesn't care. He was there for keeping his buddies alive. That's it. Wow. That, that was uh, incredible times back then. Yeah, it was nasty. And you got into the Marines. What was your experience like there? Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, when I went to boot camp at Paris Island, you know, where I was raised as a kid, these DIs knew my dad. What's a DI? Drill instructor. Yeah. And I paid dearly. I went to motivation 13 days in a row. That's getting up hour and a half before everyone else at four o'clock in the morning and going out in the mud and playing. And <laughs> I paid dearly. They wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get away with anything. They weren't, they didn't want to let down your no. father. And... <laughs> I paid dearly for that. Yeah. So they gave you an extra dose of yeah. discipline. Yeah. Yeah. How'd that work out for you? It was great, and then I got cocky, and I mouthed off to a, uh, at the rifle range uh, to a DI. I said something. I swear I didn't think he was going to hear me. It came out a little bit too loud, and he took an ammo can and smashed my right face in, and that's why I went unk. Didn't qualify as a rifleman in Paris Island, as my dad was a rifle instructor at that time because we were in the Marine Corps at the same time at the very end. Wow. Was it that, was rough. Was that more of a do what I say, not having mass logic behind it, more of the controlling of people? Is that what was going on? Oh, he told me to do something, and I popped off. That's all. And he heard it. And back then, I mean, in 71, man, I'm, I mean, you know. Different repercussions. Oh, gee, Louise. I paid dearly for that. So what was your main role in the Marines? When I got at the very yeah, end? You, you were there for how long in the Marines? Well, I spent early 70s. And then I drank my way out of the Marine Corps. But I was in Force Recon at the very end. Okay. And then I, you know, uh, the, the alcohol got a hold of me at the very end. And I drank my way out of it. So so I, I, know, I know the story a little bit more than that. Um can you share how that how that slide started to happen in the Marines? Well, you know, after Vietnam was over, uh, my training and, you know, everything was just going, going, all the training and just all, all the time. And my team, see, I was the only guy in my team that never saw action. Went over twice for prisoner snatches. But they knew we were coming, so we turned around and came back, and we were always training. But the guys in the team, those guys, like St. Pierre, he spent six years straight in Vietnam. Complete psychopath. 
All these guys were. So they went to Honduras to be mercenaries, and I didn't go. I didn't want to do that. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I just, you know, I was just wandering around and went to uh, – I was going to go to Hollywood to be a stuntman. But then I stopped by New Orleans. I wanted to see a Monte Gras. So I ended up in Lafayette, Louisiana, which I'm from Lafayette, Indiana. I don't know how I ended up there, but I did. The women had French accents, and the bars were open 24 hours a day. And I go, hey, man, I'm not going anywhere. I have landed. So I stayed there for about four years, worked on oil rigs, and just on the 21 days off, I'd go to Red Lodge, Montana, and stay drunk the whole time, or I had a place in the French Quarter. I'd stay, you know, I just, it really hit me hard. So, you know, I just drank every all the time I could. Did you drink on the job when you were no, doing No, not on the rigs. No, no. When did that drinking turn into something more? Well, that was in Hong Kong. I was doing China White. I had a little bit of China White. Now, China White is pure heroin, and it's so pure you roll it up on a ball like hash, and you put it on a long hairpin, and you light it, and it's called Chase the Dragon, and you just snort it out of your nose, and it's pure. And if you shoot that, then it's going to kill you because it's pure. And uh, I had a little chunk of that in my shorts. And I saw the Hong Kong cops coming towards me, and I flicked it out of my back pocket, and they saw the aluminum foil. So I spent three days in a four-by-four dirt cell thinking that I had eight years to wait to go to court. Uh, if it wasn't for a two-star general, because I had a great record, uh, I would have I would have died there. That was a four-by-four sail with two buckets. That was rough. Okay. I was starting to shut it off. Wow. And did that use continue after you got back from Hong Kong? Uh, not not that. I mean, down in downtown Seattle, that when I wanted to shut my life off. I started doing heroin again, but you know. and, and you did heroin on the streets of Seattle for a long time, correct? Not, no, 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 no. I only came to Seattle. Seattle was the very end of my street living on the streets. Most of it was in New Orleans. No, all over the United States. I was just hitchhiking all over the United States. And what it was, was a bomb. what was the goal of the hitchhiking? Just nothing. Just to get picked one up. one party and... to another. You know, when you're hitchhiking, some strange dudes pick you up. You know. You get some strange old prize, yeah. And, you know, my first thing, as soon as I get in a car, if that guy puts his hand on my leg, then that car is going to be in reverse real quick. <laughs> and I told him that. Or, you know, I made it very clear. So most of the time, it's, it was a hell of a party. So how did you show up in, in Seattle and start? Um, okay. My brother, I was in Indiana, and— uh, on my 40th birthday, I don't know how my brother David got a hold of me, but he found me, and he called me on my birthday. And he goes, Steve, let's go to Seattle and go uh, crabbing and make $40,000 in a couple of weeks, and, you know, let's do something. So I said, yeah. So he lived in San Diego, and I hitchhiked there, and I made it there in three days. Wow. <laughs> and he did not know what he was getting himself into. You know, a guy like me showing up on his doorsteps. So after two weeks living with him and his roommates, he paid to get me out of there. So he bought me a ticket to Seattle. He goes, Steve, you can figure this out. You just get up there and, you know, and then he gave me 50 bucks. Well, the time I got off the airplane, I was at some bar right off the airport. And I drank at 50 bucks, and I stayed there and on the back lot for about four days, you know. And I started dealing dope for uh, people. Would They'd front me dope, and I'd go to all the bars down up and down uh, um, Pacific Highway and dime the, the Coke up. And, you know. How long did it take <laughs> for you to uh, stop dealing and start using then? Oh, I— I always, you know, any any profit, I used it. When you start doing the product, then you know 
<laughs> you know, it's not going to be a long-term thing. Yeah, pack, pack highway is pretty rough. Yeah. There's a lot of nonsense going on. Yeah, well, there, I got especially. kicked out of a whorehouse slash crack house because I was making them look bad. How do you do that? That's how I met Nyer. Well, they fronted me. The madam fronted me some Coke, and she took off for a couple of days, and me and the girls, we were jumping on the beds and everything, and so, you know, and so I used all the Coke I was supposed to be selling, so she was going to have me shot, and so I went across the street. Well, actually, before that, I went the first time I ever prayed in my life, ever. I went in the bathroom, got on my knees, and asked God for help. Because I knew I didn't, I burnt every bridge I've ever had at that point. Then I walked across the street with my two bags of crap, got on a bus to go back downtown to live on the street again. And there was a gentleman on there, Nyer Ernest. And uh, he had a collar on. So I walked up to him and asked him for help. And he goes, sit down. And he was, uh, he goes, Steve, I'm, I work with the uh, Compass Center. I'm their minister. And if you sign that book every day, sober, you'll get a bed. So he goes, I want you to panhandle and I still want you to drink because I don't want you to go DTs on the street. But don't sign the book drunk. So I did. On the eighth day, I got a bed. And that changed my entire life. Um, how how so? How did it how did it stick with you in well, a positive way? Going when forward? I was at the Compass Center, I was getting straightened out. I went through DTs. I'm used to going through DTs because in drunk tanks, you know, it's like a vacation. I just get through the couple days and I can I come I can come out of it. But I went through the DTs there and uh, kept it together. And then after three months, Nyer goes, Steve. You know, I've I've seen you, you know, you you want to sober up, you go to the meetings and all that. So, I have this little cabin on Bainbridge Island. And if I ask my wife, it doesn't have any water or electricity, but would you be interested in it? It's small. It's got an outhouse and all that, and I go, "Yeah, man." So, Thanksgiving Day in 1993, I moved on Bainbridge Island. I stayed in that cabin for 13 years. Wow. Wow, that's a great story. It really picked you up, literally, yeah, and homed you, yeah, on his own personal property. Right, he trusted me. That's amazing. Um, how'd you get into bicycling? Well, when I was downtown Seattle, I saw all these guys flying around on bicycles. I go, man, if I got a job doing that, I can get back into shape. Because remember, in the Marine Corps. I was on the Marine Corps track team. I ran a three-mile in 15-3. Wow. I did long-distance swimming. I did Expo 75, uh, six-mile swim. I came in fourth. So I still have a medal, but it's not one of the big medals. But I have that. It's about the only thing I have left from living on the street because I had a girlfriend that burned all my Marine Corps stuff, swap and spit with her sister. That would do it. And, <laughs> you know, so uh, – um, I saw these guys flying around downtown on bicycles, and I handed ABC Legal every day at 4.30. I'd call them up, said, is anybody showing up? Anybody showing? He goes, God, Steve, this is the busiest time of the day. You know, please don't call. But I bugged them enough, and they gave me a job. And I worked there for seven years. As a bicycle messenger yep. in downtown Seattle? Yeah. Up and down, up and down, up and down, all day long. Seems like those messengers and the rickshaws out there, <laughs> it seems to be like a team atmosphere that they're all kind of looking out for each other. Yeah, back then, you know, if you got caught riding your bicycle on a sidewalk, it'd be such a, you would get a verbal whipping so bad. It was like, you know, why are you on the sidewalk? Are you a poser? What are you doing? I mean, you know, really. Yeah. You know, that's, so, anyhow. They always come zipping up behind you and yeah. you don't know where they're coming from, rushing all, all over the city. And now with so much traffic with Amazon and everything yeah. else, it it's a life or death type uh Yeah, you got to – well, the, trick, the thing that kept me alive being a messenger was see everything but look at nothing. Wow. You're constantly surveying the area, constantly. And then once a year, I'd get hurt bad enough to go to Harborview. Wow. 
You got hurt really bad on a bike. Once. Well, yeah, I got degloved my whole left leg. And I spent three months in Harborview Hospital on the burn unit, the eighth floor. That's why when I rode across the United States and raised $100,000, I gave 50 of it to the burn unit. Yeah. Tell, 50. tell people about some of these uh, bicycle rides that you do because you're pretty famous for the long distance trips. And yeah. I see you every every day on your bicycle. Yeah, In fact, the one day I saw you in a car, I had to take a double take. I was like, yeah. what's he doing in the car? <laughs> That's a great compliment. Thank you. One lady saw me at saw me at Town and Country, says, Steve, I've known you for 12 years. I've never seen you in street clothes. I've always seen you in spandex. <laughs> and that was a compliment to me, you know, because I, you know, that's bicycle. You got a new nickname, Spandex yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah, right. I haven't heard that yet, but we'll sure we'll get it going we're, now. We're coining it now. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag Spandex Steve. <laughs> you got a lot of support from the bicycling community, yeah. correct? Yeah. So. Tell, tell some people about some of these trips that you've done for charity already. Well, um, holy, I did the crop trip across the United States, ended up at the Vietnam Memorial Wall. That was that was really moving. And, uh, yeah, we raised $100,000 for that one. And I didn't have to do – I just did the ride and, uh, and told my story at Safeco Field in front of 300 CEOs. And uh, – that's how we raised the money, my story. And with, you know, people knew we were there for the Compass Center. And uh, then I've done, oh, oh, um, I paddled my paddleboard prone around Bainbridge Island, five hours and 50 minutes. Then I did the Chili Hilly on a bicycle right after that. So the total combined time was eight hours and I think in 12 minutes for both of them. And uh, I had some people follow me, so they knew I was for real. And we did that was awareness ride for the Housing Resource Board. Then I did another one for the Children's Museum, uh, Kitty Kitty Mew. I rode, uh, pulled my surfboard down the California coast to San Francisco, and surfed and spearfished and collected seaweed and the whole deal. That was a dream. But I got hit. And uh, that's a funny story because um, I got hit, and after two months, they settled real quick. And the day I got the check, the ne- I got the check one day, bought the Harley Davidson the next, and then a week later, I took off on a seventeen thousand mile trip around the United States in three months. And uh, yeah, that was a gift. Yeah. <laughs> You do a lot of extreme things, whether they yeah. be extremely horrible or right. extremely great. Right. You obviously have some addictive personality. When you talk, because most of the work that I know you for is you take your stroller downtown right. and you pass out hats, coats, candy bars on the premise that people will have a conversation with you. Yeah. And you have these folding chairs that you bust out and you'll pick somebody up off the street and say, hey, let's have a conversation. And then you're completely relatable to that person that's on the street because you perhaps maybe even slept on that street that you've come across this next person on. When it comes to addiction, how do you kind of balance that out where you don't have a tipping point that takes you back into a relapse situation. And then the second part of this question is, how do you help people specifically? Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of people that try hard, but don't think things through and end up enabling these people that are on the street. There's a huge home- homeless population here in Seattle, and it's just increasing and increasing. And there's a lot of smart people with no answers on how to figure this stuff out. Where do you see it going? Okay. What I do is people know me on this island, and I've done this since uh, my de- my ministry, since 2011, okay? So I've got some cred, street cred. For instance, the church mouse who make me, they make me hats. And then I have other people like Brenda and Carol and... They buy me socks, and I stick those socks inside of a hat. So I walk with my stroller, and I have a cross on. Because if you look at me, 
I'm pushing a stroller, especially when I'm on the ferry boat, right? And my stroller's packed full of crap, you know, full of boots and stuff. I pass out. So people don't know me like they used to on the on the ferry boat. So they think I'm on the street. Yeah. So I get the stink eye. Oh yeah, it's and it, that's right there. That's hard on me. Yeah, they think you're the the bag pusher well, there. Yeah, you know, pushing your cart right down the streets. You but, are, but for a different reason. Right, but I, uh, my group of guys that helped me through this mentally, like the vets. What people think of you is none of your business, and I'm on a mission here. Right, people help me do this, so they make me look good. So I get off the ferry boat. And I walk around and I see a lady or a guy or whatever, and I just hand a pair of socks to them or a hat or whatever combined or these little baggies that people are making for me. And sooner or later, they ask me the question because they know who I am, you know, because I'm down there, you know, two or three times a week. And they go, how in the hell did you do it? How would you get off the street? Then I have them. I just tell them the truth. I got on my knees and asked God for help. And then the reason why I'm not really hip on giving money to them, because I want them to go inside to get help. Because there's all kinds of help out there if they want it, but they got to want it. And if you keep giving them money, they're going to keep on doing whatever they're doing outside. So they've got to crash in. Like in the summer, that's why I hardly go downtown. I go maybe once a week if I'm in town, because they're panhandling. With the tourist coming into town, they're making a hundred or two hundred bucks a day. The sun's out. Hell, everything's great. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> There's a definitely a, a giving culture out here that yeah. supports it. Right, exactly. They got to crash and burn. I mean, it's it's hard, but there's help out there. <laughs> there's all kinds of help. I, you know, the reason why I'm doing this big paddleboard thing is for the Millionaires Club because. People's got to know about you can get work. There's plenty of work, but you got to want it. How do you get people to change their their mind from going this this easy route of being in the sun, panhandling, being in a giving culture, having these homeless encampments, and living in in kind of paradise here in in Seattle? You know, the weather is not super extreme. There's not going to be four foot of snow. There's not going to be... A lot of natural disasters. It's it's a pretty safe place to be homeless, you know, and it's easy to tap out of life and, and kind of quit. What can we do as, as as people to further the help? You know, I I think sometimes when we throw money at people, you know, it's kind of like a fire, and if you throw cash on that, the yeah. fire is just going to incinerate hotter and burn faster. And I feel like sometimes when you enable people by giving them money on the streets, you're just getting them to that next high faster and easier. What can I just do? Because I I don't know all these places. If I could direct somebody, where would I direct them? Millionaires Club, the Compass Center, the Bread of Life, the first big ones. Everyone knows about the gospel mission. But when I get clothes and boots like Harley Davis and Silverdale – the uh, hog chapter, they give me boots. I take them down to the Millionaires Club because those guys need real boots to get work, okay? Um, if you want to give money, give money to your local charity. Like here on the island, you know, we got the Compass Center. I mean, we got the uh, um, Helplines. Helpline. There, There's giving money to the guy. Oh, the real change now. Them guys are trying to get – Right. They're trying to get help. And yep. real change is – a homeless and I go there every other. I go there every other time I go downtown and drop off supplies. Now, where you collect a lot of supplies, yeah, for for street people, yeah, uh, coats, hats, the whole shebang. Can you tell some people who are contributing to that and where they can drop off stuff to help this? Well, right now, um, the Island Fitness we have a stand up there, and you could drop off stuff there. You could drop it off at. Um, St. Cecilia Church in the main office, and then Starbucks downtown uh, Bainbridge. Starbucks, they, I mean, I could have this thing in every Starbucks downtown Seattle, but I'm only one guy. Then if I start collecting all these clothes and stuff, I, I don't have time to walk the streets. 
because I'm really looking for that one or two guys a year that says, man, how do I get off this? But see, I just plant the seed. They hear the same story over and over and over. I have a story, okay? You want to hear it? Absolutely. Okay. You hear the same story over and over and over. Then he, Like I remember once I was in line at the Compass Center going up these stairs before the earthquake, right? And Nair was up at the second floor, and I was going to go up there, but I had to wait in line and go up there. And this lady, this, uh, this gentleman, cut in line in front of this lady. This lady pulls out a big butcher knife and says, man, I'll slice your fucking throat if you ever do that again. And I'm behind her going, this is what my life's turned out to be. And then over and over of living on the street in Seattle and seeing the guys flying around and all this stuff, it started to really like, I've, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Enough's enough. Uh, yes, sir. Then this is my best story I share. When I was a messenger, this is why I know God has saved me from, from what my way of thinking is. I've been saved from myself. I used to pop out of the back door at ABC Legal on Second Avenue. There was a before first um, our first office, and there's old street guy living by a dumpster. For the whole seven years, he was there. We'd help him pull his pants up. He was pimp himself out. He was always drunk. He's always just long hair, long gray beard. And, uh, you know, at first, the bicycle was my higher power, right? So I didn't drink when I was a messenger. I didn't smoke because when I moved in the cabin, I quit smoking that day, cigarettes. And I was chewing skull, but no big deal. And... I'd pop out of that back door, and then after I got my uh, done racing bicycles, I started drinking and drugging again. I was living on a sailboat because my main ride, Zenetics, he got busted for $90 million fraud, as most people know on the island. And But then I sobered up, and I was going to meetings, so I went to the market. Uh, there was a meeting there. Play, place. Yes, sir. And went to there. And that guy that I saw on the street, he had three years. Because that's how long ago I was racing around the United States. I was Mr. Hotshot Bicyclist and all that crap. And then, so I wanted what he had. So that's when I started going to these meetings. Because that, if that guy <laughs> could sober up, I mean, I wanted what he had. And I, I, can't, I could not believe that was him. I just hugged him, and man, oh, God, because I saw it. And see, that's like my family. When my family came to visit me in 2011, I took my cousin and his wife, John and Carmel, downtown Seattle, and I showed them kind of where I slept and all that crap. She almost went on her knees. Couldn't believe it because she's heard all the stories, you know. And Johnny, you know, my cousin— he heard the train wreck his whole life about Steve. And that's how they that's how I started the nonprofit. They helped me get that going. And what's the name of your nonprofit? Extremesobriety.org. And you have a additional uh, nonprofit or do you tell tell us a little bit about Roads to Recovery and what, what Well, that does. the reason Roads to Recovery that was our starting, but people don't spell the name right and it goes on to really crazy sites and all that. And gotcha. so that's why we did extreme, because it takes extreme measures to change your whole life, because that's what you got to do. You got to change your whole complete life. That's why most people you see downtown will die on the street, because they won't give it up. Now, back to being this addictive personality and kind of pushing it in the right positive directions. Yeah. You know, bicycling was, was huge for you, and it still is. Right. But yet- you still fell off the wagon while you were smir- uh, emerged, submerged, get the word right, my vernacular sucks. Um, you still fell off having, being, in my mind, addicted to bicycling. Right. You know, you raced, you, your job during the day was was biking around. Right. 
um, you're still biking around. How do we shift the that addictive personality in the right ways and and not fall again? Well, when I was doing that, it was all about me. Everything was about me and making my child support payment. That was it. That's all I cared about because I wanted that Cat 2 license so I could race with the big boys. So every waking moment, it was something to do with the bicycle. I wasn't giving back, right? The only way you can keep sobriety is to give it away. You got to help someone else out. So I've turned my life over to God. My God. Now, it doesn't, you know, everyone's got their own thing, but that's my God. And so I am total committing on helping other people. But remember, I have to keep myself fit. Yeah, it's hard to love others without loving yourself. Right. Well, I got to stay healthy. Absolutely. I mean, that's my body is my temple. And God gave me this body, and, you know, I have to stay fit. So, besides being fit, how do, how do you fuel your body right now? What, what is your eating habits? Eating? Like, yeah. Oh. Oh, I, um, I'm training now for this paddle up to Kitchikan. So, my, the days of, like in cycling, taste, eating for taste is gone. You just eat <laughs> pasta yeah. and just, just, you know, eat fish and hell. We Canon Tentry's got the best food in the Northwest, so I go there and I get my salmon and I get my tuna and uh, my protein. And you know, I'm I'm eating. I'm trying to eat very good. And then you know the the fruits and all the vegetables and yeah. Yeah. So you're f- fueling with dense. Yeah. And remember, now. I just got a new he- knee and a new hip. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going through all that. Go through that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the Mr. Act- activity has slowed down a little bit. Yeah. But now it's right back up. It's so only been ex- 11 months. Extreme sobriety, you are now planning to bring more awareness to this through um, a paddleboard and bicycle trip. Can right. you tell everybody about that? Yeah. June 14th, 5 o'clock in the morning, I leave Port Townsend and I go paddleboarding. Prone, not the stand-up, but prone like a surfboard, up to Kitchikan, Alaska. Now, that's going to take probably two and a half months or two months. or I have no idea. It's never been done. You're just going to paddle out with your hands? Yeah, that's it. From Port Townsend? Yeah. Okay. And the first day is Vancouver. Victoria, excuse me. Victoria, that's 42 miles. That's day one. See, you got to cross that before they'll let you go any further. If you can't do that, that's everybody. Sailboats. Kayaks, stand-up paddleboarders, every everyone, it's the same rule. Yeah. So you got 36 hours to do that. Then I continue on. I, I just want to make sure that I heard you right. Paddleboard from Port Townsend yeah. to Alaska. Yeah. Actually, I'm leaving here from Bainbridge because I want Father Mitchell to bless it, and I want the kids at the schools to come down and see it because the kids are going to follow this. Because I'll have uh, a little device on my on my board that people can spot it. Because I want these kids to get outside to see what we have here in the Northwest. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, man. Yeah, just put a rain jacket on and go, baby. <laughs> yep. I often say in my past life I was a duck. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I came back here. So once you get to Alaska, what's happening? Then I, I get up there, and then uh, I have some folks, John and uh, Jolene Schroeder. They're going to have my paddleboard, I mean, my bicycle and the cart and my Bob trailer up there. They're going to bring the paddleboard back. Then I take a ferry from Kitchikan down to uh, Prince Rupert. Then I cross the Canadian Rockies. I go straight east from there. I cross the Canadian Rockies, then ride down to Castle Rock, Nebraska. That's about 2,500 miles right there. Then I take the wagon train trail from Castle Rock, Nebraska, across to Reno. Then from Reno up to Seattle. So it's about 4,500-mile trip. That's going to be every bit of summer, every bit of it. But I want kids to follow me on this trip. That's a Pony Express trail, too, because I'll be going across Highway 50 in Nevada, the loneliest highway in the United States. That's good. I've done it before. That You've never heard so many coyotes at night. Oh, Thousands, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's the stars. Oh, God. This is going to be so cool. I'm happy for you. Thank you. It's a fundraiser and awareness because I got my first job in the Millionaires Club in 1993. 
So That's the, where I got my first job, brother. Yeah. This awareness ride is going to draw attention to the Millionaires Club? And I want to raise $100,000 for him. See, I got to go fund me now for me to pull this thing off. Then after that, then we're going to, like, people could, we don't know how that's going to be structured yet. People could donate per mile or lighthouse to lighthouse or something. But it's going to be, you know, more to come on that. Okay, a GoFundMe page, Steve Rhodes, R-O-H. No, the GoFundMe no? is on Extreme Sobriety. Extreme Sobriety, GoFundMe. Yes, sir. I got an odd question about yeah. this. And it's not why, but <laughs> um, well, how are you going to eat? Okay. That is, uh, I can carry five days worth of food. See, I can't have any support. So I can't mail stuff up there. No one can get support. Why is that? Well, that's part of the rules. No support. Who, who's making these rules? It's the race director. Oh, so multi- multiple people are doing this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you were the only crazy guy. No, no. Only one on a paddleboard. Prone. Ah. That's the trick. That's how I'm going to get the big attention on sharing my story. I want moms and dads to know that there's hope for their, their kids. Everyone knows someone that's struggling with this disease. And really, there's more mental illness downtown Seattle than alcohol and drugs, brother. I mean, we can't take care of our own mentally ill. They, they don't have anyone. They don't have nothing. A lot of these guys are lost in life. And then we get these kids back from this war. They join because they don't have anybody. Then they get out. Then they get all this baggage in their brain. And then they, they still don't have anybody. Then they're hooked on all these Oxycontin crap. That's why they go to heroin, because it's so cheap. Yeah, it's, it's troublesome. What In your mind... What kind of percentage of, of people are on the streets currently? Like, do you have a ballpark number of? What do you mean? Like, is there is there five homeless people downtown, or is there fifty thousand people downtown homeless? Is, oh God! In your estimation, what's that oh, look like? It, it. I mean, anybody can walk just up to the market, and you'll see three or four, at least. I mean, drug and, and drug I, users you're talking about. Well, yeah, or mentally ill, or do you do you think more people are homeless because of the mental illness? Yeah, or the drugs. Yeah, mentally ill. Yeah. So this this bike slash paddleboard trip, how can people help in this endeavor for you? Help me? Oh well, if they want to the help whole me, product. If they want to help me, they can go on the GoFundMe site on Extreme Sobriety. Okay, I need fifteen grand to pull this whole thing off. That's, that's the new board that's getting built. That is the money coming down. It's the gear because on this paddleboard, remember, there's no room on that board. There's no compartments, so I can take two bags. That's it, and the bags are like a small backpack or like a, two messenger bags. So all my Marine Corps survival skills is coming in. Remember, I'm doing it in June. So I'm taking a bivy sack, a hammock, a thermal rest, because I have to have something on my between my back. And remember, I've broken my back. I've broken my neck. You know, I've been banged up. So I can't live on, you know, sleep on a rock for two months. So right. I want to I be off the ground. And then all my – then I have to get – the trick is to get out of the wetsuit and then getting – into my dry clothes. So I put a poncho over my head. I strip, get out of my wetsuit. And somehow I use a dry cloth or something to get the salt water off my body. Because after day, after day, after day, that water is going to start getting to my skin. Yeah. So all these freshwater ponds and all this stuff, I've got to be in it. So are you going to have a water purifier with you? Yeah. Yeah, I'll have all that stuff. Gotcha. Seems like fire building. I have, see, I have a bag on me, uh, like a fanny pack, and it's waterproof. It's a Patagonia. That's going to have my sat phone and my survival gear in case something happens. It breaks my board in half. Another boat hits me or something. That's my nine one one. Never leaves my body. Then every bag I have, and every other bag inside of the bag has three fire starters. And then waterproof, that's my whole thing. 
and then my two bl- two knives. Radio? Yeah. You going to bring a radio? Yeah. Book I, to read? I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You going to listen to the podcast on the way? I don't know. But I'm going to have my... Uh, see, there's a new GoPro out. That's going to be married to my phone. So wherever I'm in satellite range or whatever that is, then the kids can follow the pictures and my Facebook and all this. And I'm trying. I'm getting all this going now, so I don't have the big answers for that. I'm going to need help with that. Yeah, we're both a little tech-tarted. <laughs> Good one. Yeah, because I'm definitely a man. I got a phone, and that's all. He says, "Well, what what do you look at on your computer? I don't have a computer. I have my phone. That's it. Walmart, fifty bucks a month, baby. <laughs> Beautiful. Hey, um." You got any shout-outs? You want to say hi to anybody or uh, mention oh. some of these sponsors that are helping you? Oh, man. Uh, my sponsors, like Streamliner Diner, for instance. Every time I go downtown, they give me a free breakfast and their muffins, all right? So everyone wants to help. They just don't know how. Then BI Cycle, you know, they keep my bike together and all that. I was at Bon Bon, and they made me about 50 of these blessing bags, for the uh, women and men downtown, but mostly women, because most people hear about the guy. They don't hear about the women. So these blessing bags, they have women hygiene products that they need because the women can't afford that stuff. Even in jails, they don't get it, women hygiene products. It's disgusting. You know, they use toilet paper. That's bullshit. So I, and then they, Bon Bon puts chocolate in there. And so in the winter, it's great because it doesn't melt, right? So I pass out these blessing bags and these all these poor women, they just smile. And see, I get to see that, right? So that's cool. That's how I get, you know, and then I talk, give to the guys. But then you got to keep it together because a lot of guys, they'll throw it back at you. I had a guy do that. He says, man, I can't smoke this. Yeah. I want some cigarettes. I said, you want two? So you got to have a sense of humor, man. And then you've got to be able to... I, you you got to be very careful because they think I'm on the street and I walked myself in an alley once because I knew two thugs were behind me and I turned around and I said, you really think you're going to take this from me? And then they started diarrhea all over their mouth and all that. So they knew they were busted. And I've never seen them since. Starbucks obviously helps you. Starbucks, they collect all their stuff for me. St. Cecilia. Um, St. Cecilia Church. Oh, also, yeah, people could donate there. Um, um, oh, uh, Market Elevated. There, I'm on uh, my new – I don't take any medication for my knee and my hip, but I do take the um, uh, CBD products. And I, I just – that has really helped me. Remember, that's like decaf coffee. There's no THC in it. Because I won't let anything destroy my sobriety, right? So uh, I've been on that for about five months now, and it's just – it's been the best thing for my – for everything, for my knee and my hip. I don't feel any pain. And I do a lot of – you know, everybody sees me downtown on the bike or whatever and see on Bainbridge Island, I'm flying. I mean, I'm – Yeah. Shout out to Steve and Brendan at Market Elevated. Yeah. There's another uh, story for you of success with what you're doing. And yeah, you are flying – I've seen you come back from some stiffness, let's put it that way. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll see you a couple of days later. You're uh, you're moving. You're grooving. Well, we, you know, remember, like when I got off the street, I had to have something to sober up to. You had to have a reason. Yeah. And that and was your bicycle. Yeah. Well, that and getting back into shape because in the Northwest, you know, you got all these things we can do. And then, you know, uh, I never knew I was going to pick up surfing at age 50 like I did. And that that took it a whole nother world to me. Yeah, you're, you're living the dream here, surfing, yeah. paddleboarding, bicycling. Just no being, more surfing, being outside. and not after I got the knee and the hip. No more uh-huh. surfing. Because the leash will undo everything they give me. Because, you know, surfing big waves, that leash will just ragdoll you. And that's how I got in this predicament. I mean, that's what the doctor did in Hawaii fly back to Seattle, get a new knee and new hip after that ass kicking I got from Jaws. So, wow. Yeah. Um, I wish you all the best with, with this stuff. Um, before we head out of here, can you tell me a little bit about these things right in front of you on the desk here? 
Okay, I have these bracelets from the fallen warriors that we've lost from Vietnam and all the wars. People that know me, I'm starting to collect these bracelets, and I always wear them. That's going to be embedded in the paddleboard, and that's for, you know, my just something to look at. And, you know, people have gave their lives for the cool things that we have in, in the United States, right? And uh, so that's going to be embedded in the uh, board. And um, Blakely Harbor Boards is making me a brand new. It's a 20-footer, and it's one inch wider, and it's going to have a little couple little things to keep it stable. Because on a paddleboard, uh, you guys always see my board on top of my car. You know, it's a skinny, it looks like a kayak. You have it on the back of your bike sometimes too, right? I used to pull it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, it's in fact, in, I have a I have a YouTube. Look under uh, road cycling and paddleboarding, R H O A D E S, and you'll see the YouTube. Some uh, chick from uh, the high school, she put it together for me. That was pretty cool. I forgot her name, but anyhow. Um, and um, um, I can't. <laughs> well, that's all right. That's all right. Hey, um, I wish you all the best with this trip. Thank you so much. Let's remind everybody how they can be involved. Um. You can be involved in several ways. Uh, obviously, I have to make a living to do what I do, and uh, I have a nonprofit. It's extremesobriety.org. You can help me out financially. I'd sure appreciate that. And also, hats and coats and these things that you're not using. You know, think about if you haven't used it in 30 days, I could use it. Yeah, <laughs> or give it to your local charity or whatever, but, you know um, – we have too much stuff, right? Yeah, I could use some boots because the Millionaires Club could really use boots because these guys, they're mostly in tennis shoes and they can't afford a pair of, you know, hardy boots. So that'd be a that'd be a really... All uh, right, Islanders, get, get those old boots out of the closet, take them down to Starbucks, St. Cecilia's, correct? Yeah, and Island Fitness. Island Fitness and leave those for somebody that will put some work in those boots. Um, Steve... Thanks for coming on to the Bystander Podcast today. I'll look forward to having coffee with you tomorrow. Thanks, Tim. I will look forward to many, 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 many more conversations with you. Great. Have a great day, buddy. Thank you so much. God bless. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com.